So let's imagine this week I'm having a party, and you're invited, but you don't know where I live. So in between services, you stop someone in the hallway, and you ask if this person knows where I live. He says, yeah, I, I think he lives north somewhere. I think it's like out by Branched Oak Lake. So they give you some directions on how to get there. So you're not sure that sounds right, so you ask someone else. Someone else says, yeah, no, he's not north, he's east. I think he's down by Palmyra or Syracuse, somewhere down there. So they give you detailed directions how to get east. But then you bump into me in the hallway. And I say, you know, I don't live north, I don't live east, I live south, down by the metropolis of Firth. And I give you real clear directions how to get to my house. So then later that day, you're gathered with family or friends, and you say, I, I just don't know what to do. I'm so confused. So what's the problem? Three different people gave me directions to Brian's house, and now I don't know which one is true. And your friend says to you, you know, it really doesn't matter. All roads lead to Brian's house. <laughs> How many of you would find that an acceptable answer? We would see that as silliness. I don't live north, east, and south. So let's imagine the conversation goes on. And your friend says, well, who did you get the directions from? Well, two of the directions came from perfect strangers. But one came from Brian himself. Wouldn't it make sense if that person said to you, don't you think it's logical that Brian knows where he lives? And those are probably the correct directions. In a world with hundreds, maybe thousands of claims on how to get to God's house, don't you think the one who would know for sure would be God himself? Now, we live in a world dominated by a couple of isms. The first one would be relativism. Relativism is the idea that there are no moral absolutes, that everything's relative. Now, if you've been around here a while, you've heard me say before, I think at the end of the day, it's true that nobody really buys into relativism. I think it's nothing more than a convenient excuse to convince ourselves at the end of the day there's no moral accountability so we can do as we please. When we watch the news and we see the atrocities in Syria, the relativist would have to say there's no basis by which to say that's good or evil or right or wrong. And yet isn't there something deep in our gut that says in the name of humanity that just isn't right? There's something evil about that. Something deep within us says there's got to be standards of right and wrong and good and evil. One of the ways that you see that relativists don't 
really at the end of the day believe what they say they believe is the fact that if you're truly a relativist, then you really can't be critical. You really can't be judgmental. You really can't be for a cause. Because at the end of the day, there is no way to say anything's right or wrong or good or evil. So in any public debate, you have to remain silent to be consistent with your view. And yet most of the relativists I know are some of the most critical, judgmental, outspoken people I know, which tells me you don't really buy this. Because if you bought it, you'd have to be quiet, and you're not quiet. Built on top of relativism is what's called pluralism. Pluralism is basically the idea that at the end of the day, all roads lead to God. And there can be contradictory truth statements in different religions, and they're all equally true. They're all equally valid. Of course, pluralism is built on relativism. If relativism is true, then I suppose we can make up whatever we want to. Pluralism is basically an outflow of a belief that I can be my own God. And now as my own God, I'm free to make God in my image. And I'm free to define for myself the way to God, the directions to God's house, and I basically create my own little personal religion. And again, if relativism is true, I suppose that makes some degree of sense. But it seems to me that God, by definition, is absolute. Help me understand a definition of God where God is not absolute. Isn't that the very essence of what it means to be God? And if God is absolute, then there are absolutes. And we are not free to create God in our own image, but rather to recognize we've been created in his image. Therefore, the two options on the table is I can worship him as God, or I can rebel against him as God. Now, if it's true that there are absolutes and there is truth, then wouldn't it be reasonable to assume that God knows the way to his own house? And so with all of these religions that dominate the landscape of our world, wouldn't it be true that there is truth? So contradictory truth statements are not equally valid. We have to begin to sort out and figure out what's really true. Now that changes the discussion a little bit. Now we're on a mission to sort out what's true and what's not true. Now that's complicated. There are so many uh, world religions and, and belief systems around the world. But I would suggest to you that if you put Christianity up against the world religions, there's a couple of ways that it's very distinct. One way that Christianity is very distinct is the very central claim of Christianity is rooted in historical fact. It's not a bunch of religious talk. It's not some dream or some mystery or something that happened in a cave far away. The central message of Christianity is there is one God. That one God is absolute. And that one God actually became 
flesh and walked on this earth. He did miracles. He proclaimed to people. And ultimately, he was executed. He was buried. And he rose again. And he appeared to hundreds of witnesses, which launched a movement that has virtually changed the world. These are historical facts. They can be investigated. They can be challenged. They can be validated, which uh, puts Christianity on a very different level. The second thing that makes Christianity very distinct is this scandalous thing we call grace. Every other religion of the world has the same operating system. Somehow, some way, there's some level of religious performance that merits some sort of favor with God or the gods. There's only one belief system that is radically other than that, which carries the belief that actually God himself did the work, completed it on the cross, and offers salvation freely as a gift of his grace. No religious works required. I would suggest to you the concept of grace is so other than anything any of us have ever experienced in this world, it could have only been born in the mind of God. It's dramatically different than every other world religion. Think of it this way. Religion, by its very essence, glorifies sinful man. Grace, by its very essence, glorifies a holy God. You tell me, which system do you think is more likely that God has unveiled? A system that glorifies sinful man or a system that glorifies a holy God? So we begin to separate Christianity from the other religions of the world. But now, under the umbrella of Christianity, it still gets very confusing because there's lots of denominations. There's lots of truth claims. It all gets so confusing. Who's got it right? Now, I understand that. It is unfortunate. It is confusing. I get that. But if we, as Christians, are going to identify ourselves as Christ followers... Wouldn't the most important question be, what did Christ say? In other words, isn't it somewhat irrelevant what the label is? Whether the label is Protestant or Catholic, whether it's Adventist or Baptist or Berean or anything else, at the end of the day, don't all the labels come off and truth is truth. So the relevant question really is, what did Jesus say? Now, didn't Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Isn't that Jesus saying, this is the way to my house? And wouldn't he be the most likely one to know that. 
Well, this confusion about what's true and what's not true is not something new. It's the struggle that the Galatians were having. The Galatians had no concept of Jesus and grace and salvation. And then the Apostle Paul comes along. He proclaims this fabulous message of salvation on the basis of God's grace received by faith. And they are so excited about it that they embrace that message and their lives are radically changed. But then Paul moves on. And in moves the Judaizers, the Jewish legalists. And they come in saying, hey, we're all for the Jesus thing. Man, we celebrate Christmas and we celebrate Easter. We're we're really on board with all that. But there's a few more things from the law that you have to keep in order to experience God's salvation. So now the Galatians are confused. Which one is telling the truth. And Paul is seeking to help them sort that out. That's where we pick up the text this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Galatians chapter 1. We started our series last week, and Paul reminded us that the gospel is the message that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus himself declared on the cross, it is finished, paid in full, nothing more necessary. Romans 1 through 8 declares that we are justified, declared righteous in the presence of God, simply as a gift of God's grace that we receive by faith. No religious works required. But the Judaizers have now confused that and actually added to the gospel of grace, which Paul says now makes it a different gospel, which is actually no gospel at all. So now we pick up the text in verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. That opening phrase, I would have you know, is actually a formal phrase. In other words, Paul's not having a little chit-chat with them. It's much more like a lawyer in a courtroom declaring that he's about to lay out his case. And the first thing he says is this gospel of grace is not merely his opinion. It's not merely someone else's opinion. That's what he means, not according to man. It's not just something someone thought up. Verse 12, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The word received it there is a word that would uh, reflect the idea of receiving a creed or a tradition that's handed down. So he's saying, this is not something that was handed down to me that I'm passing on. Now, we have to be a little bit careful right here because Paul's certainly not saying that's a bad thing. 
As a matter of fact, every single one of us would have to say the basis by which we understand the gospel is it was handed down to us. We have the scriptures handed down to us. But what Paul was saying is uniquely, he got the gospel message out of the mouth of Jesus himself. That would be unique to the Apostle Paul and a handful of apostles. That's what he's claiming there. It was not received from man, nor was I taught it. Paul's saying, I didn't go to seminary, I didn't get it in Bible college. Nobody pulled me aside and said, this is what you're supposed to say. So how did he get the gospel of grace? Answer, he says, I received it as a revelation from Jesus Christ. In other words, the debate is over whether or not the message Paul is delivering is true. Contrary to the message of the Judaizers, Paul's claim is, I know it's true because I got it directly out of the mouth of Jesus, and it seems to me Jesus would know the right directions to his house. Now, of course, at this point in the text, we could say, yeah, but anybody could claim that. Anybody could claim that I got this from Jesus, that this is some revelation from God. As a matter of fact, preachers, unfortunately, claim that all the time. So how do we know this is really the truth? Well, there's a couple ways to answer that question. Number one, we talked about this last week, that Paul is claiming the authority as an apostle of God himself. And as such, we believe that he is declaring the truth of God. So we would say that we believe the scripture is the inspired, authoritative word of God. The Bible does not claim to be a collection of people's opinions. It claims to be the very God-breathed word. Peter actually says every single word was superintended by God. And so we're going to view it through that lens. So if that's what Paul is saying, we say we agree with that. We believe that because we believe it's authoritative. But in the first century, the Galatians did not have the authoritative scriptures. This was one of the first letters written. So Paul's going to have to validate his claim another way, which just gives us more assurance that this is indeed true. He's going to do that by telling his own story. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. He says, you've heard my story. Paul's story was so dramatic that it was known far and wide. There's absolutely no question that Judaizers knew this story. And it's likely that Paul himself had told his story to the Galatians. So Paul is claiming his own personal story and talking about who he was before Christ, his former manner of life. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a very zealous Pharisee. His life in Judaism, he used to persecute the church of God Beyond measure, that phrase basically means beyond what was reasonable, beyond what was right, beyond what was fair and just. His end goal was to absolutely destroy it, to annihilate the Christian church. 
Now this former life of Paul is so important to his argument. Keep your thumb there. Flip back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. I just want to show you a couple of passages that describes Paul when he was Saul and an enemy of the church. Acts chapter 8 is right after Stephen was stoned to death. And Saul, Paul, was an eyewitness to that. Verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Flip over to chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Very vivid language. Flip back to uh, Acts chapter 26. At the end of Paul's story, he's giving a defense before Agrippa, and part of his defense is simply telling his own personal story. Listen to how he describes his own story before Agrippa, starting in verse 10. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them, in other words, torture, to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to the foreign cities. The language in all three of these texts is extreme. Even as Paul describes himself, he moved to the point of torturing men and women to get them to blaspheme and recant against their belief in Jesus. So you have to understand, this was a guy who was incredibly zealous for the cause of Judaism, desiring to completely wipe out Christianity. Verse 14, now back to Galatians. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He's talking about in Judaism, he was even surpassing his contemporary. In other words, he was a rising star. He was the best of the best. He was the most zealous of all. Even among them, he was extreme. It would be fair to say that the Jewish legalists in Galatia were lightweights compared to who Paul was before his conversion. But then the story turns in verse 15, but when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me. 
But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. He's talking about his conversion on the Damascus Road. If you want to know more about that, it's recorded in Acts chapter 9. Paul literally had gone to the officials, received documents that gave him permission to arrest and even execute Christians. He had them in his hand. He's on his way to Damascus, and God confronts him on the road, drops him to his knees, and literally reveals Jesus to him. And Jesus himself says to the Apostle Paul, Why are you persecuting me? At that moment, there was no way for Saul to say, You don't exist. There was no way for Saul to say, You're still in the grave. There was no way for Saul to say, I don't believe in you. He was busted face to face with the risen Christ. There was no option but to believe. And it radically changed his life overnight. He says when that happened, he didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood. He didn't run off to seminary. He didn't go to Bible school. He didn't ask somebody to help him with his theology. He did not go down to Judea, where the apostles were, and get a theological education. What did he do? He went to Damascus momentarily. He disappeared into Arabia for three years, finally showed up back in Damascus, preaching the gospel of grace. Now, I love the fact that in his testimony, he says in verse 15, God called through his grace. Now, stop and think about this. There is virtually no way Paul could claim salvation on the basis of religious works. At the moment when Jesus confronted him, his report card would have been F minus. He was actually persecuting Christ. He was actually torturing the church. He was on the opposite side of God and his movement. There was simply not a religious work that would have counted toward his salvation at all. Yet in that moment, God in his goodness and grace offered him forgiveness and salvation as a gift. And Paul says, in that moment when I saw the resurrected Christ, I believed. And my life was radically changed on the basis of grace and grace alone. That's the only thing he could claim. It's really hard to process how radical this story is. For people that knew him and who he was in Judaism, that virtually overnight he would become a preacher of the very gospel that he was seeking to destroy was staggering. Imagine a couple of years ago, seeing the nightly news and having Osama bin Laden come on the nightly news and say, hey, I just need to tell you, overnight, I made a decision to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. Imagine the shock of that moment. The apostles' uh, conversion from Saul to the apostle Paul would have been on that kind of a level where people were just stunned. 
at how radical that conversion was. Verse 18. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see other, did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. After three years in Arabia, then down to Damascus, already preaching a message of the gospel of grace, he makes his way down to Jerusalem. He spends 15 days with Peter. The word get acquainted is the Greek word from which we get our word history. It's a word that basically means Paul told his story and Peter told his story. He was not there for a theological education. The text is very clear. He was there to get to know Peter. The only other apostle he met while he was there was James. In other words, it wasn't 15 days of theological training. It was get to know Peter, meet James, and headed north. Paul's life was at risk because the Judaizers wanted him dead now that they considered him a traitor. So they basically send him back up to Tarsus, which is the area from which he had come from. And he remains there in virtual anonymity for 14 years. He even says, if I walk through the door of a Christian church down in Judea, they would not even recognize me. They didn't know me. They didn't train me. They didn't teach me. I am virtually unknown to them. Other than they keep hearing that this crazy maniac Pharisee who is seeking to destroy the church is now a preacher of the very gospel he wanted to destroy. And they glorify God for that. The basic idea of the argument is this. How, does, how do they explain how Paul could have possibly experienced such a radical conversion, a conversion that would put his life at risk, a conversion for which he would ultimately die, and virtually within days is preaching a message of salvation by grace through faith alone, radically other than everything he had been taught his whole life. How did he get that message of grace? It would be 14 years before Paul would finally go to Jerusalem and sit with the Jerusalem council and lay out, this is the message I've been preaching. And they would find it exactly the same as the message of the apostles who had received it directly out of the mouth of Jesus himself. And his argument is, how is it possible that I was able to deliver the exact same message that the apostles heard from Jesus himself if I'd never heard it from them, 
The only explanation would be, I had to have received it directly from Jesus himself. That is his evidence that the message that he proclaims is a message he received directly out of the mouth of Jesus himself. And wouldn't Jesus know the right directions to his house? Now, I understand there's still lots of questions. Definition of terms, what is legalism, what is it not, what about this, what about that? We have a long way to go, and we're going to unpack a lot of things. So I realize there's still lots of questions in all this. But as we close this down this morning, I just ask you to think about a couple of things. First of all, probably most of us come from some sort of religious background. And you had some sort of religious teaching. And over the years, what I've noticed is a lot of people just default back to that. It's, oh, that's not what I was taught. Or this is what I was taught growing up. Or this is what my parents taught me. Or this is what my church taught me. And we just kind of default back to that and basically think then everything's going to be okay. This is very important to remind ourselves what we're talking about here is not what is your favorite restaurant? What is your favorite food? You know, who do you think's gonna win the football games today? What we're talking about is the eternal destination of your soul. We're talking about what's true in terms of God defining this is the way of salvation. This is for all the marbles. And it would be very significant for all of us to back up and wrestle with the question, regardless of what I've been taught in my past, isn't the relevant question, what did Jesus say? Let's take all the labels off. It doesn't really matter if you're Protestant or Catholic or Adventist or Baptist or Berean. Let's take all the labels off and say, doesn't it matter what Jesus said? And can we, over the next several weeks, be diligent to wrestle with what did Jesus say is the way of salvation? Second of all, one of the things that really confuses people is that all these different denominations and churches and movements tend to use the same language, the same terminology. And it's very difficult to wrestle around in there and figure out we're defining our terms very differently. One of the ways I've seen over the years that the truth of what those terms really mean means doesn't become clear until you choose to leave that church, leave that denomination, leave that movement. When you make that decision, it's then that you finally get to the true definition of terms. It's the last ditch attempt to try to control you. So think about it this way. If you have ever heard 
that you need a particular church, that you need a particular movement, that you need a particular denomination to ultimately experience God's salvation. There should be a red flashing light going on. Because that's telling you at the end of the day, they do not believe it's salvation by grace through faith alone. They are saying it's salvation by grace through faith alone plus something we offer and without us, you cannot get in. It's one of the ways you can begin to sort out. You do not need the Bereans. You do not need the Baptists. You do not need the Catholics. You do not need the Adventists. You do not need any church, any denomination, any movement. All you need is the finished work of Jesus on the cross in order to experience salvation. So as you begin to process through your own spiritual journey and your own past, one of the things that might be helpful is if anyone has told you you need a denomination, a church, a movement in order to be saved, that is strong evidence that you've been taught something that simply isn't true. Over the weeks to come, we're going to be very diligent to roll up our sleeves and wrestle with the question, what did Jesus say? Because we know Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And it's the truth that will set you free. Our Father, we're thankful that you love us and you tell us the truth. God, so often we get in the way and we make just a big mess of things and everything gets confused. Lord, my prayer would be that every single one of us would have our hearts and minds opened to understanding clearly what Jesus has said about the way of life, that we might experience the truth as the truth sets us free. In Jesus' name. Amen.